choice is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. It's Tuesday and it's 12 o'clock, which means it's my great privilege to welcome you to another episode of Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, with me, your host, Paige Nick. Coming up on today's show, Beverly Ruiz Miller reviews a new release. It's called Daisy DeMelka, Hiding Among Killers in the City of Gold, and it's by Ted Boerter and published by Jonathan Ball. Interestingly, this book was recently launched at the Women's Jail on Constitution Hill, which is where Daisy DeMelka served out her sentence, a launch that sounds as fascinating as the book itself. After that, we haven't had a nature book on the show in a while, so I'm looking forward to hearing what John Hanks thought of Ian Engelbrecht's Field Guide to Scorpions of South Africa. After that, a book that's caused a huge amount of interest and massive sales already, Twanji Kalula reviews Truth to Power by Andre Dureta about his three years inside ESCOM. This should be the only thing that's illuminating about ESCOM right now, sadly. And then we head into four great interviews, one after the other. Melvin Minar chats to Joanne Gibson, who's one of South Africa's most important wine gurus. Then Beryl Eichenberger interviews great South African author Bridget Pitt on her latest novel called I, Brother Horn, which is published by Catalyst Press. And in a great coup for the show, Philip Todras interviews Johnny Steinberg about his latest novel, which unpacks the lives of Winnie and Nelson Mandela in great detail. In Winnie and Nelson, Portrait of a Marriage, published by Jonathan Ball Publishers. And then I'll wrap up the show telling you what I've been reading. But before all that, how about some music and then we can get on with the show? Oh, but first, about the music in today's show, which has been carefully and cleverly curated by Rick Everett and Dave Wood, all the tracks that you're going to hear in today's show have a lot in common with all the books you're going to hear about in today's show. For one thing, all the songs are by South Africans, and all the books in today's show are also by South African authors. Yep, this show is 100% local and liquor today, and we couldn't be prouder. And as Beverly Rosmiller pointed out, all the tracks are about the various stages of love, just like Johnny Steinberg's new book on Winnie and Nelson Mandela. This first track is Twilight Time, played by pianist Ken Higgins.
Let's dive straight into our first review here on Book Choice, sponsored by Exclusive Books. Beverly Ruiz Miller is here to weigh in on Daisy DeMelco, Hiding Among Killers in the City of Gold, which is by Ted Boerter and published by Jonathan Ball. Mother, nurse, gold digger, a criminal turned celebrity. They say that when Daisy DeMelco stood trial in 1932, accused of poisoning her son and two husbands, that the public couldn't get enough of her. Crowds gathered outside court baying for blood, and she waved to them like a celebrity. Beverly Rose Miller is here to tell us all about it. I grew up hearing about the murdering Daisy DeMelka. Women talked about the shocking killing of her own son, the only crime she was actually convicted of before being hanged in 1932 in the boom town of Johannesburg. But men regarded her as a monster, for she had also poisoned two husbands, as well as likely all five of her children over a 20-year period. Fear of the female poisoner still looms large in a world where men are generally the committers of crime. Ted Boerter's book reads into the gripping and massively sensational crime, especially the trial itself, which attracted huge and fashionable crowds. People fought each other to get seats. In these years, this was the best equivalent of the darker side of social media wanting to be present when the inevitable verdict was handed down from the Johannesburg Supreme Court that she would be hanged by the neck until she was dead. She was the talk of the town, with even the great Herman Charles Bosman, who himself had done time for manslaughter, writing about her. She had lived a modest, quiet life as a mother, wife and nurse in Johannesburg for nearly three decades, and it was only because of the annoyance of a relative who had lost out on the small inheritance he had expected, and who alerted the police to all the many strange deaths in her household that led to the investigation which ended in her being the first woman hanged in South Africa for poisoning. Poisoning is a dreadful form of murder. The author discusses this. Prolonged poisoning, as in Daisy's case, can cause great distress to the victim. Strychnine produces excruciating symptoms, which include a feeling of suffocation and dread and terrible muscular spasms. Arsenic was easier to obtain and often even used medicinally in tiny doses and it was this that Daisy, who had once lavished love and attention on her only surviving child with the unfortunate name of Rhodes Cecil, she used this to kill her spoiled and sometimes abusive grown son. She was also charged with the murder of her two husbands with strychnine, but this was not proved although the ongoing pattern of deaths in a household were very similar. What has never been proved but implied was that she had poisoned all five of her children. The motive given was that of money. She inherited some, yet often it was quite little. Executing women holds a particular revulsion in society, probably because females are supposed to be the safer sex, commit far fewer violent crimes, and most of all, because they are trusted to keep households safe. So what led Daisy to commit this unforgivable crime? She could have walked out, for example, as other wives and mothers have done. The photograph used on the cover is the very recognisable one of an ugly woman, her face tilted and twisted for the mugshot, showing her as hideous. Yet she was not that unattractive. Other images of her show her in a better light and she had a noticeable sense of humour. Why do women poison? Did she suffer from postpartum depression? Was she abused by the men around her? The answer is yes. 
though many women are and don't end up reaching for the arsenic in the gardening shed? Is it a form of agency, even though that seems to confound the very laws of nature? This is an issue I wish had been explored. Meanwhile, given that this is a gruesome, shocking and never forgotten crime, and one that society holds in the deepest contempt, I have no doubt that Daisy DeMalka will attract a large reading audience, despite Daisy remaining as elusive as ever. And from one dangerous creature to another, John Hanks joins us now with a review of a book by Ian Engelbrecht called A Field Guide to Scorpions of South Africa. I'll tell you what, I am deathly terrified, and I mean absolutely, completely terrified of scorpions. And I've always thought that if I educated myself about them, I might understand them a little bit better and not be so completely paralyzed by a fear of them. What do you think, John? Is this one I should dig into? Ian Engelbrecht has produced the first comprehensive field guide to describe and illustrate all of the 108 species of scorpions that occur in South Africa. And I have no hesitation whatsoever in saying that this publication is in a class of its own, a superb example of how a field guide should be produced. By any standard, scorpions are remarkable creatures, and this publication will not fail to stimulate interest in these fascinating arthropods, which, out of fear, too many people regard as frightening or even repulsive, because they can sting. The species accounts are particularly comprehensive, with excellent photographs calling attention to structural details to help with identification, accompanied by information on behaviour and habitat, often with images of typical habitat, up-to-date distribution maps, and a fascinating venomosity scale for each species, ranging from red, which means highly venomous, to green, which means of least concern. A surprising number of scorpions fall in the green category, where stings are described as being painful but not significant, and far fewer in the red group, less than 5%, which includes the rough, thick-tailed scorpion, a species incidentally widespread in the western half of South Africa, with a sting that can result in death, particularly with children, with fatalities occurring within three hours. Obviously, correct identification is thus of paramount importance, and the author has stressed this in his comprehensive 18-page introduction, stating that with education and proper precautions, scorpion stings can be avoided. Unlike other field guides, this one includes a really helpful section in the introduction on classification and taxonomy, and how the scientific names that are used for all animals and plants are derived. These names always appear in the text in italics to stand out from the surrounding text and can be based on the place where the species was first described or named after a person to honour another expert. All too often, these names look rather daunting to pronounce and consequently are avoided, even at times by conservation staff. For each species, Ian Engelbrecht has included a pronunciation guide together with the source of the name. For example, the glossy thick-tailed scorpion scientific name is Parabuthis kuwanyamarim, named after the Kuwanyama dialect of the Avambo language spoken in northern Namibia, where the species was originally described. And to help with pronunciation, the name is broken down into syllables with capital letters denoting emphasis. 
Thus, the specific name of this particular scorpion is pronounced Kuwanyamarim, not at all obvious when first seen. I really hope that this will stimulate a more widespread use of scientific nomenclature. This is an exceptional field guide. And if you're interested in South Africa's extraordinary celebration of biodiversity, you must have your own copy. The title again, Field Guide to Scorpions of South Africa, written by Ian Engelbrecht, and it's published, just published, by Straight Nature. And you can buy a copy for 400 rand. Thank you, John. It sounds very good, but I just don't know if I'm brave enough. Speaking of being brave, Twanji Kalula is up next with a review of Truth to Power, the hot new controversial book by Andre Dureta about his three years inside ESCOM. Illuminate us, Twanji. Last year, I reviewed a book called Sabotage by Carl Cowan, which delved into the key players at ESCOM and touched on some of the criminal syndicates that have brought our country to its knees. The book was very sympathetic to former ESCOM CEO Andre Dureta, and the author had given him a vote of confidence. So, to some degree, I walked away from reading that book feeling like things may actually turn around. So when I saw the press release for Andre Dureta's Truth to Power, my three years inside ESCOM, I had very low expectations. He had been splashed all over the news since his shocking tell-all interview with Annika Larson, and I didn't think there was anything more I needed to know about ESCOM or him. He was there, he resigned, he joined the revolving door at the ESCOM CEO's office, and we were still in the dark after all. Speaking of being in the dark, Penguin Random House, who published this book, did a great job of keeping it under wraps. At the time of the launch, Dorator had left the country to an undisclosed location for his own safety, and I imagine that there were many people who would have preferred it if he hadn't written the book at all. You'll recall that he had that incident with arsenic, personalized mug being laced with arsenic, as well as his cars being tracked, and he was essentially a dead man walking. He needed to leave the country. Despite this, Penguin managed to produce, print, and get the book into stores without drawing any media attention, and of course, it has been an instant hit. In fact, the book sold over 16,000 copies in the first week and has sold over 50,000 since. Unsurprisingly, illegal PDF copies have been passed around, which is terrible for any book lover. As a reminder, bestsellers like this one make it possible for South African titles that are less popular, including fiction, which is nonetheless important to be published. Truth to Power was an engrossing book from the start. I had always wondered why anyone would leave a cushy senior executive job in the private sector to take on the most stressful job in South Africa. Dereta had just been working at NAMPAC, and he spends the first couple of chapters detailing what led him to accept the job and how he planned to turn the organization around. As expected, it soon became apparent that there was a lot more going on at ESCOM. Dorator blows the lid off the ongoing political interference that makes turning load shedding around nearly impossible. He also explains how he launched a private investigation into the corruption at ESCOM and uncovered four powerful cartels who have looted the organization and make turning our power woes around nearly impossible. We all suspected things were problematic and that there was looting at ESCOM, but reading about it in black and white is something else. And this book is engrossing and it is interesting, but it's also really depressing. That said, I still believe it is worth reading. Dorette reminds us that nothing will be achieved if we all just bury our heads in the sand. Despite knowing how the story ended, he resigned, 
when I started reading the book, it really felt as though Andre Dorato was going to tell us how he entered ISCOM and turned it around. It had the makings of a great tale with a strong heroic arc of an experienced executive who walked in, hit the ground running, and turned things around. Sadly, the fact that I've become used to falling asleep with the hum of generators in the distance reminds me that the war against load shedding and corruption has yet to be won. I do recommend this read. I think it is really interesting for all South Africans. Truth to Power. My Three Years Inside ESCOM by Andre Dorato was published by Penguin Random House and retails for 350 rand. Why are there so many songs about rainbows and what's on the other side rainbows are visions and only illusions and rainbows have nothing to hide so we've been told and some choose to believe it I know they're wrong, wait and see Someday we'll find it The rainbow connection The lovers, the dreamers and me Who said that every wish Would be heard and answered And wished on the morning star Somebody thought of that And someone believed it And look what it's done so far What's so amazing That keeps us stargazing And what do we think we might see The lovers, the dreamers and me All of us under its spell We know that it's probably magic Have you been half asleep? Have you heard voices? I've heard them calling my name Is this the sweet sound that calls the young sailors The voice might be one and the same I've heard it too many times to ignore it It's something that I'm supposed to be Someday we'll find it The rainbow connection The lovers the dreamers and me la 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 da 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 someday we'll find it the rainbow connection the lovers the dreamers and me Welcome back to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, with me, your host, as always, Paige Nick. 
That track was The Rainbow Connection and it was sung by Louise Howlett, another proudly South African track in our proudly South African book show. For our first of three interviews on the show today, we welcome Melvin Minow, who met up in our studios to chat to Joanne Gibson, who is one of South Africa's top experts on wine culture history. Joanne has written two books on two wine estates. Let me see if I can get this right. Their titles are Clan Constantia, the home of Vinda Constance, and Ferchenuch Low Reds, Racehorses and Runner Ducks. Welcome to the studio, Melvin and Joanne. As a wine lover and ever curious uh, about culture, history and the arts, Joanne Gibson is one of my favorite writers. She brings it all together in a deep dive into the history of wine in South Africa. Today, she is regarded as the foremost researcher writer on the subject, and two new books with her contributions are returning the spotlight on two historical Cape wine estates, Clan Constantia and Fergenoch. Let me say both Clan Constantia, the home of Werner Constance and Fergenoch Low, Reds, Racehorses and Runner Ducks, to give the full titles, are coffee table delights, but more importantly, valuable publications about history and culture that disappears all too fast nowadays. So congratulations, Joan. Thank you, Malcolm. What compels you and drives you to the subject matter? The many hours researching and then writing down the history, which is always so intriguingly readable. Why do you do this? How do you do this? I think I started to fall in love with the early history of South African wine a few years ago when Lowell Euster of Ken Constantia asked me to start digging into the real stories because quite often what you see on websites and in brochures is summarized and sanitized and not necessarily the, the truth. And often truth really is stranger than fiction. Sometimes the stories are just remarkable. And that's kind of what got me hooked in the first place. It sort of went from researching the, the history of Constantia, which is world famous, to digging up other little nuggets around the winelands because that early history was actually quite well recorded by the Dutch. And if you just look, you don't even have to look that deep, but these little stories emerge and they're just quite delightful. Maybe scandalous a few <laughs> decades ago, but now I just, love, I just love finding them. Well, thanks to you for bringing them about. The marketing people always say, people who drink wine also love the good story behind the label. Uh, always these intrigues, and but you take it to a higher level. Uh, do you think that idea of the story is an important part of this marketing concept, or is it? Uh, what's your thoughts about that? I think it's vital, and I think we lost sight of it for a while. I think for quite a long time, with social media and influencing and brands, it's become. <coughs> less about the stories and I think there's going to be a shift back to those stories because that's what differentiates South Africa and our wine farms and it's amazing it's wonderful I love it yeah I, I suppose people always love stories and storytellers and the intrigue of it but how did you particularly land up in the wine area of the stories of the wine culture is that the 
the wine that you drink and love? Well, I suppose I was a wine writer long before I became a wine historian. <laughs> I've been writing about wine for over two decades. And, you know, I did a lot of the more commercial side of wine writing, which I enjoyed. But there also came a point where I got a bit tired of recommending the top three Chardonnays to go with roast chicken or that sort of thing. The Cape's agricultural and wine history can be construed as ultimately colonial, and yet these stories are so so full of intrigue. And what struck me in, in both these books is really how you are aware of, of what was left out in the colonial history. I think that's why you're such an important writer of, of these books. Yeah, thank you. I think it is important to be aware of what was here before the colonizers arrived and how that all happened, how, how things evolved. But also um, the role of the slaves, of course. In, in Absolutely. Yeah. And I think those, I mean, unfortunately, slavery was the norm. And you see that in the fact that former slaves who became successful often became, almost inevitably became slave owners themselves. It was just entrenched as, as the norm in those days. And I think um, it is important to acknowledge their their role, both in terms of the back-breaking labor that they did in the fields and the vineyards, but then also to reflect on how how much of a Cape melting pot it really was in terms of the people who came from all over Europe, but also from the East and Africa. And those early decades in particular are fascinating because... There was so much more going on than we knew about, you know, during the last few decades of apartheid. Are there, are there many more stories to be told? Wine histories that need to be uncovered? Definitely. Well, Joanne, thank you very much for these two books. They're great contributions to the wine culture and hope they're more and we'll find out more. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Thank you, Melvin. Klein Constantia, the home of Verde Constance, and Vergenoeg Lowe. Reds, racehorses and runner ducks are available at the estates. It must have been colder in my shed Never have sunlight on your face You've been content to let me shine You've always walked a step behind So I was the one with all the glory While you were the one with all the strength Only a face without a name I've never once heard you
was Wind Between My Wings, sung by Gay Corsten, and you're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick. And this show, as always, is sponsored by Exclusive Books. Right, back to the books. As Beryl Eichenberger chats to author Bridget Pitt about her latest novel, I, Brother Horn, which was published by Catalyst Press. Bridget is a South African environmental activist and art teacher, but most importantly, she's an incredible South African author. Colonialism. Much has been written about it, much discussion has ensued, and many fingers pointed at the perpetrators. For missionaries, the opening up of Africa to convert the heathens was a zealot's dream. For the British landed gentry, the promise of huge wealth in these untamed lands with the sugarcane, mines and wild animals was too good an opportunity to miss. Our current environmental devastation is very much because of the uncontrolled and vicious hunting of that time. Dispossession was the name of the game for the superior colonists. We live with that legacy today, and in I, Brother Horn, Bridget Pitt has written a sensitive and unusual novel of late 19th century life in the depths of the Natal bush on a small mission station. Welcome, Bridget, and thank you so much for coming in today. Thanks so much. I want to ask you why you explored this time frame of 1862 to 1879 and the missionaries. What what prompted you to do that? Well, there were a range of things. Um, I mean, I, I actually set off to write a, a book about contemporary rhino poaching. And the more I spoke to people about it, particularly the people who were living around the Umfalozi Game Reserve, the more I realized that the origins of the poaching crisis that we are facing now actually came from the colonial period. So that started me kind of going down that road. And when I did sort of reading around it, it seemed to me that that time period from 1860 to um, 1879, which was when the Anglo-Zulu War took place, Mm -hmm. 
was a very it was a very kind of turbulent time and and a really rapid transformation. So colonialism in the Cape had happened more slowly and over a longer period. Those very protracted close wars. But in in KZN, the British arrived there in 1824, and they were still very much there on the you know behest of of Shaka Zulu at that stage, but the later kings. And then they kind of established, and so by, by 1850 or so, they were a fairly established um, colony. They kind of pushed the Boers to the side. And those those years then became the kind of years where the colonial project really played itself mm-hmm. out and sort of culminating in the Anglo-Zulu War. The two characters, I felt that they were biblical connotations. Moses, because he was found by the river, and, of course, the young Daniel, but they are brothers, but not biological brothers. How did you come about the these two characters? They're very beautifully shaped, but they are very, very different, and yet they bond as brothers. Yes, I think, I mean, for me, characters always bring themselves. Uh, you know, I have an, a, a kind of idea, and I often only really get to know the character by the end of the first draft. And then I've got to rewrite the book. <laughs> <laughs> they knock on the door. <laughs> yeah, because sometimes I realise things are just not what where that character would be. And this this book, it actually took me about three or four drafts mm-hmm. before I felt I really came to grips with who they were. Um, partly, I think, because Moses in particular, well, both of them, you know, in the colonial setting, they, they had very clearly defined roles yes. um, set for them by society which they subverted. Um, but it was getting to the underneath of, of those roles and that subversion that took a lot of exploration. And I played a little bit with the, the idea of Moses. I think he's a, he's a biblical character with a kind of double-edged sword because Moses, on the one hand, was you know the one to sort of lead the people out of Egypt. Yes. So the, in, the, in the eyes of the missionary who named him, he was going to be the one to lead his people into the light of Christianity. But Moses also led his people out of slavery. Yes. And actually killed a slave owner. So Moses actually was quite a revolutionary character as well. So so there were two ways that Moses could go with that kind of uh, identity. I, I found that there was quite a reversal of roles, which I found very, very interesting. But we're not going to give any spoilers away. Suffice to say, there is a, a tremendous mysticism that Daniel holds within himself and he has the brush with the rhino. Bridget, perhaps you'd like to speak to that because it is completely different to Moses who is very attuned to the maths and sciences. Yes, I mean I think Moses' love of maths and science stems a lot from his desire to seek the truth Mm -hmm. because he knows he's been lied to about so many things. And I think he also was really cut off from the sense of mysticism, from the, the Zulu mysticism, because yes. he was warned against it so violently almost um, by his adopted father. Whereas for Daniel, I think that brush with the rhino, it opened a whole kind of layer of possibility in him. Mm-hmm. Almost a portal in his it, brain. In a way, mm. yeah. And and because because that was opened, it enabled him to resist what the colonials were trying to do. Um, and it enabled him to resist becoming a, a weapon or being weaponized, in a sense, by, mm-hmm. by the colonial project. As the baby, where the horn comes from, and also that eye. He's a very sensitive, creative young man. It, it's a fascinating book. 
it does show us what the hard reality of being black and white are and the differences, which Moses seemed to understand. I wish we had more time because I know that we're running out of it, but I, Brother Horn, gives a very sharp picture. Bridget, thank you so much for coming in today. It's published by Catalyst Press and it's by Bridget Pitt. You've got to Love was sung there by Megan Katz here on Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. For our last interview in today's show, we're joined by Philip Todras chatting to Johnny Steinberg about his remarkable new book, Winnie and Nelson, Portrait of a Marriage, published by Jonathan Ball Publishers. Johnny Steinberg is a massively awarded South African author, and every single one of his books he just outdoes himself, and this is no different. This book is an in-depth overview of the people and politics that contributed to the long and challenging walk to freedom. I think well captured by J.M. Kutsir, who said of Portrait of a Marriage, it's unlikely to be superseded in a long time. Welcome to the show, Philip and Johnny. Woody and Nelson, Portrait of a Marriage, written by Johnny Steinberg, had its sort of official launch, as it were, at the Franschuk Literary Festival. And we're very privileged to have Johnny there to bounce off quite a lot of serious questions. 
Johnny, first of all, before we get into the story itself, the amount of research that went in to find your story, can you give us a bit of that background so we can't question you on authenticity? Thanks, Patrick. It's good to be here. There were all sorts of sources. You know, one is I, I interviewed, I haven't counted, but about 150 people who knew them well from Winnie's sisters who knew her as a girl to people who were close to them when they died. An interesting source was uh, the, the old Minister of Apartheid Minister of Justice, Kwebi Kutsia's papers. He was Minister of Justice and Prisons for the last 10 years that Mandela was in jail and bugged all of his conversations with all of his visitors, including Winnie. And when he left office, took those transcripts with him. Um, and, and I found out that they existed about halfway through the research and, and read them. They were a And how did you difficult... feel about that intimacy that you were engaging in and sort of very confidential and taped things that they perhaps did or didn't know about? Well, they're obviously an ethically difficult source. Their, their privacy was invaded because he was a prisoner. Um, you know, these were, they conducted their marriage through these conversations. They had no other way of speaking to each other. I was always going to use them. I was, I was writing a book about their marriage, and, and this was the center of their marriage. And I guess the burden on me was to, to use them sensitively, with sympathy, to preserve their dignity. I'm not the best person to ask whether I managed that. The, the reader is. Well, it's called Portrait of a Marriage. And that's the only thing I really have a reservation about, because really it's a portrait of a marriage and its impact on South Africa. Well, absolutely. You know, Nelson and Winnie very self-consciously wanted their marriage to be a famous and public marriage and one that embodied the story of their country. And they put, they crafted it as a public story and put it out there. And a very simple one, which is that this wonderful, beautiful couple had been torn asunder by a cruel state. And the day that they were reunited and got together again was the day their people were free. And so they really wanted their story to embody a national story. And I think they did, but not as they intended. In, in the end, their marriage embodied all the pain, the violence, the conflict that happened to their people while Nelson was in, in prison. So it was the idea is that it's a portrait of a marriage and a country. And it was the one marriage that could be a portrait of a country, too. Well... It's even more complex than that, really, because as you've got to filter through the personalities, and I, I think the line that the images developed apart, what happens when the myth and the reality comes together? How did you find that in terms of having to deal with it and trying to scrape through the reality, as opposed to they were very powerful at getting across the message they wanted? Well, the reality of their marriage was, you know, how do you keep a marriage together when you're apart for 27 years? And in a sense, they drifted off in opposite directions, both politically and personally. Personally, Nelson Mandela was severed from his life and began to romanticize the life he once lived and romanticize his wife. And so he fell more and more in love with her the longer he was in prison and tried to preserve what they had. But what they had was a, a woman in her late teens and early 20s. And in a sense, what he was holding on to was a fantasy. His, the very core of his identity was a fantastical one. Whereas she was the outside living an adult life. She had other lovers. She developed her own political identity. And by the time they got back together again, she had little respect for his politics. She was estranged from him, whereas he wanted it all to work. Now, what were her politics as opposed to his? Well, they started off much the same. They both very much endorsed an armed struggle against apartheid, but a, a disciplined and measured one. As he got older, he more and more feared his country descending into civil war and wanted to prevent it and, and wanted a peaceful negotiated end to apartheid. She went the other way. The things that happened to her on the outside, including her detention and torture and exile, 
um, drove her in a much more radical direction. And by the end, she believed that apartheid could only end not just violently, but through spectacular violence, through the arming of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of ordinary people with automatic weapons. So it's that disparity. Um, was he not even able to bring that across to her or when somebody came out of prison? What was the scenario there that in his attempt to find that middle ground or find the ground that was not tear them apart in this dramatic way and each one going separately and quite, it's painful. He was in an impossible position when he left prison. He, a part of him understood that they had grown both personally and politically too far apart to be put together again. But at the same time, his marriage to her was all that he had. He, he couldn't imagine a future without us. And particularly his children. Yes. Um, he did a great deal to try and put his children's lives together again while he was in prison. And, and again, he couldn't do that from a distance. So he, he kind of had this double consciousness. He understood that everything had changed in 27 years, but he also didn't understand that. He, he wanted to piece together a version of what he'd had before he went to prison. And the tragedy is that it was long gone. And eventually understood that, and he described his life as a tragedy. He, those very close to him in the early 90s described him as a deeply sad human being. That comes through very well. In fact, I'm going to say, I can't tell you more than that because you've got to read it. And I think it's quite rightly declared Winnie and Nelson is a modern epic in which trauma doesn't just affect the couple at its centre, but an entire nation. And that comes through very powerfully, and you've told the story very movingly, and you know that it's not a simple one. It's not lightly nuanced, it's strongly nuanced with all shades of variations. And your final word on it and response to it? Well, I can't do better than that. I, I, I don't want to have a final word. I want the reader to. It's, it's, a, it's, it's meant to be an open book, um, and, and I'm looking forward to see what different people make of it. Well, it's also regarded as a Shakespearean drama in which bonds of love and commitment mingle with timeless questions. I think that's a good summary of a book that is well worth reading. We've been speaking to Johnny Steinberg about Winnie and Nelson, Portrait of a Marriage. Thank you, Philip and Johnny. There's no doubt that this is a super important book. I can only imagine the kind of research that goes into something like this. And now Vanessa Levenstein joins us for a quick book bite on a book by Melanie Favot with a great title. It's called Never Waste a Good Hysterectomy. I'm not a fan of memoirs. Perhaps it's because social media feels like one big oversharing stream of memoirs. Yet, after listening to Rodney Trudgeon's People of Note interview with Melanie Favot, I had to read her book. For a start, the title appeals to my copywriter sensibilities and Paige, you're also going to love it. The book is called Never Waste a Good Hysterectomy. Melanie Favut's life is interesting. She was married to the grandson of the late H.F. Favut. Milani was a member of Parliament, the South African ambassador to Ireland, and his delightful stories about Madiba. But most importantly, in the context of this book, Milani is a woman who confronts what is clearly a taboo topic, women's health. Milani's journey started with a routine gynecological checkup in which a large ovarian tumour was discovered, and then she was told she needed a radical hysterectomy. What makes the book so interesting is that Milani contextualizes her own story against the landscape of our patriarchal world. She says, unsurprisingly, the physical became the political again. For example, in Canada, where ovarian cancer is the most fatal of gynecological cancers, three times more money is spent on research into prostate cancer than ovarian cancer. 
Milani speaks about the grief and loneliness she experienced pre and post the hysterectomy and again contextualizes this within the framework of the loneliness we all experienced during COVID. And as we know, grief is triggering. She writes, grief is a funny thing. It is something only those who have walked a similar road can fully understand. It never leaves you completely. What makes this book so relatable and readable is it speaks about loss and the recovery and healing process. And that topic is universal. I do believe in the best possible way we need to talk about never waste a good hysterectomy. What an inspirational collection of insightful books by not just big name South African authors, but by huge name South African authors on today's show. Before we sign out for another two weeks, I wanted to tell you what I've been reading. Sticking to the theme of South African authors, if you enjoy a good domestic thriller, check out author Gail Schimmel. Gail has written a number of thrillers and she just gets better and better. I had to speed read her latest. It's called Little Secrets and it's published by Pan Macmillan because my mom came over for lunch and to quote her, she always says, Gail Schimmel is my favorite South African author. She says this despite the fact that I, her daughter, am a South African author. <clears throat> so that tells you how she feels about Gail Schimmel. So I knew there would be no way she'd leave my house without it. So I had to speed read all the way through it. That being said, it moves at a great pace. So it's the kind of book that you'll race through anyway. This is a tense domestic thriller. This book's about a Joburg family, a mom, a dad, a teen and young twins. And they've all got busy lives, each peppered with these little secrets that start to unravel all of them. Cue creepy, tension-filled music. Cue a thrilling read. Cue me thinking, thank goodness I'm not a parent to a teen or twins. I don't know how anyone does it. And with that, it's time for me to thank Mzuma Keta for pulling the show together and to thank all our reviewers and interviewers and all our authors and, of course, you, our listeners. Without you and our lovely sponsors' exclusive books, there would be no show. If you missed any of the titles or the books on today's show, we'll load the show as a podcast on fmr.co.za. And we'll be back in two weeks' time with book choice, publisher's choice, and lots more lovely books for you. We're playing out with Perhaps Love, sung by Aviva Pelham, and Edmondo Ram. Until next time, happy reading. Perhaps love is like a resting place, a shelter from the storm. It exists to give you comfort. It is there to keep you warm. And in those times of trouble, when you are most alone, the memories of love will bring you home.
Book Choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. The Exclusive Books recommend selection makes it easy. By curating 25 of the most talked about and trending books hitting the shelves, you can, with one glance, get a snapshot of everything hot in the world of books, locally and internationally. Exclusive Books also sell gifts, vouchers, stationery and more. Pop into your nearest Exclusive Books and feast your eyes. For more information or to purchase online, visit exclusivebooks.co.za.